Leadership Beyond Despair. Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is remarkable for the extreme realism with which it portrays human character. Its heroes are not superhuman. Its non-heroes are not archetypal villains. The best have failings, the worst often have saving virtues. I know of no other religious literature quite like it. This makes it very difficult to use biblical narrative to teach a simple black-and-white approach to ethics, and that, argued Rav Tzvi Hashchayas in his Mavoha Gadot, is why rabbinic midrash often systematically reinterprets the narrative, so that the good becomes all good and the bad all bad. For sound educational reasons, midrash paints the moral life in terms of black and white. Yet the plain sense remains, and the Talmud tells us, "Ein mikra a biblical passage never loses its plain interpretation, and it's important that we don't lose sight of it. It's as if monotheism brought into being at the same time a profound humanism. God in the Hebrew Bible is nothing like the gods of myth. They were half human, half divine. The result was that in the epic literature of pagan cultures, human heroes were often seen as almost like gods. They were semi-divine. In stark contrast, monotheism creates a total distinction between God and humanity. If God is wholly God, then human beings can be seen as wholly human, subtle, complex mixtures of strength and weakness. We identify with the heroes of the Bible because despite their greatness, they never cease to be human, nor do they aspire to be anything else. Hence the phenomenon of which the parasha of Balotacha provides a shattering example, the vulnerability of some of the greatest religious leaders of all time to depression and despair. The context is familiar enough. The Israelites are complaining about their food. The rabble among them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and saying, If only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic, but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Now, this isn't a new story. We heard it before in, actually, the 16th chapter of Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus. Yet on this occasion, Moses experiences what one can only call a breakdown. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? I cannot carry these, all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I've found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Moses prays for death. Nor is he the only person in Tanakh to do so. There are at least others, at least three others. There's Elijah, when after his successful confrontation with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, Queen Jezebel issues a warrant for him to be killed. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Yehuda. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then there was Jonah, after God had forgiven the inhabitants of Nineveh. The text says Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, 
Oh Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then there was Jeremiah. After the people fail to heed his message and publicly humiliate him, this is what he says. O Lord, you enticed me and I was enticed. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. The word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, made him glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Lavdil Elef Havdalot, no comparison is intended between the religious heroes of Tanakh and the political heroes of the modern world. They're different types, living in different ages, functioning in different spheres. Yet we find a similar phenomenon in one of the great figures of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. Throughout much of his life, he was prone to periods of acute depression. He called it the black dog. He told his daughter, I've achieved a great deal to achieve nothing in the end. He told a friend that he prays every day for death. In 1944, he told his doctor, Lord Moran, that he kept himself from standing close to a train platform or overlooking the side of a ship because he might be tempted to commit suicide. A second's desperation would end everything, he said. Why are the greatest so often haunted by a sense of failure? Anthony Storr, in his book, Churchill's Black Dog, offers some compelling psychological insights, but at the simplest level we see certain common features, at least among the biblical prophets, a passionate drive to change the world, combined with a deep sense of personal inadequacy. Moses says, who am I that I should lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Jeremiah says, I can't speak, I'm only a child. Jonah tries to flee from his mission. The very sense of responsibility that leads a prophet to heed the call of God can lead him to blame himself when the people around him do not heed the same call. Yet it is that same inner voice that ultimately holds the cure. The prophet doesn't believe in himself. He believes in God. He doesn't undertake to lead because he sees himself as a leader, but because he sees a task to be done and no one else willing to do it. His greatness lies not within himself but beyond himself, in his sense of being summoned to a task that must be done however inadequate we know ourselves to be. Despair can, in fact, be part of leadership itself. For when the prophet sees himself reviled, rebuked, criticized, when his words fall on stony ground, when he sees people listening to what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, that is when the last layers of self are burned away, leaving only the task, the mission, the call. When that happens, a new greatness is born. It now no longer matters that the prophet is unpopular and unheeded. All that matters is the work and the one who has summoned him to it. That's when the prophet arrives at the truth, famously stated by Rabbi Tarfan, It is not for you to complete the task, but neither are you free to stand aside from it. 
And again, without seeking to equal, equate the sacred and the secular, I cannot but end with the words spoken by Theodore Roosevelt in a speech to the students at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1910, which sum up both the challenge and the consolation of leadership in cadences of timeless eloquence. This is what he said. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could actually have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Leadership in a noble cause can bring despair, but it is also the cure. Shabbat Shalom.